You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Willie. What's up, everybody? It's your host, Chili Willie, aka Opera O'Malley. Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the second part of the Miles Davis story. Now, if you haven't heard the first episode, part one of the Miles Davis story, it's about to get a little confusing. So, go ahead and take a listen. Don't worry, I'll still be here when you come back. Alright, well, hope you brought your swim cap and your goggles, because we're about to dive in, head first, into the depth of cool. Well, maybe not head first. So, here's, here's just a little recap for you. Silence definitely wasn't Miles' favorite sound. And that's all that came through on the phone. And it especially bothered him that he couldn't see his father's expression. If he could only see his father's face, it would show him all he needed to know. But after a few more moments of intense silence, his father finally spoke up. So what did he say? Well, it would change what Miles thought about music for the rest of his life. Miles' father spoke softly, slowly, making sure every word hit like a brick. Miles, you ever hear that bird outside your window? He's a mockingbird. He doesn't have a sound of his own. He copies everybody's sound. And you don't want to do that. You want to be your own man. Have your own sound. That's what it's really about. So don't be anybody else but yourself. You know what you gotta do, and I, I trust your judgment. Don't worry, I'll keep sending you money until you get on your feet. His father has always seen, heard, and felt his son's passion. He felt it continue to grow now more than ever. Miles' passion was like a quiet fire. He was never overly braggadocious about his skills, yet his fiery passion spread like a wildfire. Although some parts of it had burned out, others had lit up in a blaze of sonic glory, and his father was always there to let it burn. College was finally behind Miles, yet he seemed to learn much more from the smoky clubs of 52nd Street. One of the things he perfected in those clubs was hard bop. Uh, here's a crazy definition for you. The hyper-complex, acrobatic style of playing torrential melodies at breakneck tempos. It was a style that New York was just being introduced to. Miles had been playing it for a year straight. At first he felt challenged by this style, but not anymore. Even though hard bop is often referred to as hot jazz, Miles' fiery passion was beginning to sputter out. At the time, Miles was on the cusp of a few different things. Stardom, musical identity, and self-destruction. In 1949, he was right in the middle of it all, disoriented and looking for inspiration before anything else. This is when a colleague invited him to play at the Paris International Jazz Festival, so he decided he would go. 
And as it turned out, in Paris, he found just what he was looking for. Inspiration seems to come at the most unexpected times. It's hard to go looking for it. But when you're expecting the unexpected, well, you're guaranteed to find it. It was the first time he'd ever been abroad. And for Miles, Paris was a wonderland of unexpected pleasures. The food tasted better. The air was richer. The people were beautiful. And the African Americans were treated far better in Paris than in America. Although he had a family back home in St. Louis, Miles felt there was something missing. He just didn't feel passion for his wife anymore. Miles had always been so deep into the music that he never really had time for true romance, well, until now. Juliet Greco was one of those young bohemian beauties and an aspiring actress on the side. But of course, to some, she was much more. She captivated those around her with looks of mystique. Her love of existential poetry only brought more wonder and even the attention of elite musicians, artists, and philosophers. But after seeing Miles backstage at a certain concert in Paris, she was the one intrigued. This marked the beginning of a lusty love affair, intensified by the romanticism that came naturally with Paris itself. Les enfants qui s'embrassent debout Contre les portes de la nuit. The Seine River was choppy, uneven, and the raindrops pierced the river's crystal clear glow. It was one of those days where it was raining, but the sun was out. Miles and Juliet became just another couple lovers in Paris, completely in sync with each other and the city as they walked down to the river together. The air in Paris that day was brisk, but they weren't cold. They held each other tight as they walked through the fresh evening air. And Miles held the umbrella perfectly over both of them, somehow never letting a drop hit their bodies. It was one of those walks where you don't really know where you're going. You don't really have a set destination. You just want to explore. But these two lovers were already so lost in each other's eyes that they could have been walking in circles and never even known it. They weren't just lost either. It was like they were in a trance, hypnotized but by each other. Miles listened to the rain. He listened to the way Juliet spoke. He couldn't understand a word she was saying, yet it didn't matter. He knew exactly what she felt. They communicated through emotion. And luckily, Miles was good at it too. I mean, he'd been communicating through emotion his entire life. All the emotions he saw and heard throughout his life, he translated it into music. But he'd never felt or expressed emotion like this before. Whether he was in love with himself, or Juliet, or both. Because, after all, he was treated like a jazz god already in Paris. Treated as an equal hanging out with Pablo Picasso and other huge creative geniuses of the day. He was living an illusion of possibilities. 
Yeah, Paris opened him up to a whole new realm of possibilities, but it was an illusion because, well, he knew he couldn't stay there for the rest of his life. He had to leave. He had a home, a kid, a whole life. Although, now that Miles had experienced what some may call heaven on earth, going back to his old life, it didn't seem like a life at all. A wife he didn't truly love, a style of music he was forced to play that he no longer even enjoyed playing, blatant racism everywhere he turned. It was the complete opposite of what he'd been living in. He would have to go from heaven on earth straight to hell. On the day he left, Juliet asked him why he won't just marry her and stay in Paris, to which he replied that he loves her too much to make her unhappy. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Through 12 months dark with conflict, 1949, like all years, leaves its message for posterity. It was written in Washington by the representatives of 12 nations. It was countersigned across the freedom-loving world by 330 million people. Strength in peace for the prevention of war. That was the message of the Atlantic Pact. The message of the year. Strength in peace may have been the message of the year. And 1949 was a pretty great year for the world in general. But not for Miles Davis. When he came back from Paris, he fell into a deep depression. Nothing could ever feel as good as he felt while he was in Paris. He wanted desperately to find that bliss that he'd grown so used to. But that kind of bliss wasn't so easy to find just anywhere, let alone New York. Little did Miles know that there was another kind of bliss out there. But this was a different kind of bliss altogether. A synthetic bliss, tucked away in the back alleys, lurking in parts of the city where you wouldn't want to go out after dark. But it was also lurking in the hands and the veins of the elite, under layers of secrecy. That's how it made its way to Miles. When Miles tried heroin for the first time, it was ten times more powerful than any happiness, joy, or true love he'd ever felt. Something finally awoke in him, that feeling he'd been looking for his entire life. What a beautiful melody, he thought to himself. His entire body felt like a beautiful melody. Just like a warm blanket on a cold winter night. But just before he could take it all in, it was all gone. Only to make him come running back for more. He began to lose his sense of discipline, except for when it came to getting more heroin. Miles just didn't want to think anymore, he wanted to be on autopilot. So surprisingly, he continued to function as normal, at least until his habit became a little bit too expensive. He was falling behind on rent, even though he was just staying at hotels. He was even about to lose his car. Quote, I started getting a little money from whores to feed and support my habit. I started to pimp him, even before I realized that's what I was doing. I was what I used to call a professional junkie. 
That's all I lived for. I even chose my jobs according to whether or not it would be easy for me to cop drugs. I turned into one of the best hustlers because I could get heroin every day, no matter what I had to do." End quote. His old friend Billy Eckstein was worried about Miles. He just wasn't himself. In fact, it had only been a few years and Miles was actually a completely different person. So Billy invited him on tour in an effort to get him back on his feet. But as it turned out, going on tour wouldn't get Miles back on his feet. It just made Miles want to take his feet off the ground and get sky high. Now, Billy Eckstein was a big fan of collaboration. And when he saw an old friend on tour, he invited her to tag along for the ride with him and Miles. It was another Billy, Billy Holiday. But by this time, unfortunately, she wasn't the bright and shining star she once was. She was already deep down a rabbit hole of drugs, drinking, and relationships with abusive men. Although Billy Holiday's story is a sad one, she remains one of the greatest jazz vocalists of all time, and is also one of the few well-known women of jazz. Even today, jazz continues to be a hugely male-dominated sport. Now, even though this podcast is about Miles Davis, I think it's worth spending a few minutes talking about just a few of the female jazz legends. So let's get into it. During World War II, women played so many important roles, including on stage. Filling the void left by the men in the military, women took over jazz, although many of them were still prevented from taking center stage thanks to the sexist venue owners and record company executives of the time. Most female musicians simply found other ways to pursue a career in music. Some became composers, arrangers, or artists' managers. Some did all of that and then some, like Valeta Snow. She was a master of the trumpet, but also played a ton of other instruments, as well as singing, doing arrangements for orchestras, and appearing prominently in early Hollywood films. All the way through the 60s, 70s, 80s, even today, the jazz and the music industry in general is highly sexist. Especially in the 60s and 70s, female musicians were on a separate tier. But the 60s was a double-edged sword for jazz, because there also was an onslaught of absolute legends that broke through to become household names like Nina Simone and Etta James. There were still countless female musicians who were absolute legends in their own right, yet for some reason they haven't been written in the history books of jazz, although they helped us push it forward, and possibly even more than men. Now, that beastly sax solo is not a seven-foot-tall New Yorker with his shirt off. <laughs> nope. That is 33-year-old Willene Barton. This song, Rice Pudding, was the song that she wrote with her trio, which was an all-woman band. But before she met her band, she taught herself how to play the saxophone when she was in her early teens, and played it around New York in any club that would allow her. She may have even played it for Miles Davis at one of those clubs. As rock and roll started to develop, she recognized the instant attraction and popularity it had and melded her style to become funkier, heavier, and almost grungy. Nonetheless, absolutely ferocious. She sculpted her sound and innovated, 
ultimately helping create funk and R&B as we know it today. The expectations of women back in that time was to get married and have children. But these women chose to live a life of uncertainty, a life of creativity, and a life of jazz. And I'm feeling good. Anyway, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the women of jazz, although there's so much more to talk about that. I can get into that in another episode. But for now, back to Miles Davis and his tour with the Billies, Billie Holiday and Billie Eckstein. The three amigos went from city to city, ripping up jazz clubs wherever they went. They were a team, just not a very good one. When they weren't performing, Billie Eckstein would always be on the prowl for talented young musicians, trying to find someone else to collaborate with. On the other hand, Miles and Billie Holiday were presumably shooting up somewhere behind the scene. Either that, or walking the streets in a personality-altering stupor. That's all thanks to a drug that was just a few years before referred to as a wonder drug. Well, heroin is, is a wonder drug, alright. Just not in a very good way. And Miles had an obscene amount of the stuff in his system. How he was actually able to play his trumpet during the few shows he attended during this tour, <laughs> who even knows? Hell, I'm surprised he was able to even stand up. But he did. And he played that horn like he was drifting off into heaven. And probably because he was. <laughs> Okay, in reality, he most likely sounded something like this. His career was on the last thread, the absolute brink of destruction. The few fans he had left were getting angry. Whispers would be exchanged among the crowd during shows. And Miles, he was too high to care. To him, it was just another show to rack up the money for dope. The reality of it was, confused and concerned faces were being shot at him from everyone in every direction. Some were even walking out. But what none of them knew was that someone very special was in the audience that night. Someone who was too infuriated to even lend an ear. He had a pure emotionless face, and he was still as a statue, standing and plotting his attack. This man had a secret weapon, and he was about to use it. This man was the only person on the planet who had authority over Miles Davis. This man was his father. Finally, after watching the spectacle, letting his anger brew for a minute, he started trudging towards the door. But he wasn't ready to leave just yet. No, he was trudging towards a different door. He was headed backstage. But he couldn't get anywhere without bumping into five large bodyguards, to whom which he tried to pull the father card, but <laughs> didn't work. So he headed back into the auditorium. The room stank of negativity. The angry old dentist especially stunk of negativity. But slowly, the negativity was turning into an idea. A reckless one, but nonetheless, an idea. 
out-of-key notes and dirty looks filled the air. Miles' father waded through the crowd, inched himself closer to the stage, walked right up the stairs to the side of it, and grabbed his son by the collar like a little boy. His trumpet dropped to the floor before anyone could shout one last angry goodbye boo. And just like that, the two were gone, out the door. Quote, I felt like a little boy with his daddy. I never felt that way before. Probably never felt that way since. End quote. He told his father he would kick the habit. He just needed a few months to rest. Instead, he kept using. Kept using his father's money to buy it, too. Now Miles was living his life fully as a hustler. Music was just something he used to do, as he was now banned from most of the clubs. He used to think the drugs made him play better like it did for his old bandmate Charlie Parker. He looked up to him, and when he was high, he would play his ass off. But the heroin had deceived him, and heroin was his entire life now. Miles Davis didn't become synonymous with the word cool because he was perfect. Cool is not having a care in the world. And Miles, at this point, had gone way too deep into that state of mind. He was homeless, yet he didn't care. Cool is also balanced, and everyone finds their balance differently. I can imagine Miles sitting in an alley, seeing a phone booth and remembering that call with his father a few years ago. His father supporting him, even though he decided to drop out of college. A tear running down his face as he began to see beauty in the world once again. Entering the booth, he dials that one phone number he knew by heart. Hello? Hello? Miles, is that you? L listen, listen, son. I don't know where you are, but I'll tell you where you're going. You're, you're either gonna die, or you're coming home. You understand me? And you ain't gonna die. I'll arrange for a bus to come pick you up. So I'll see you soon. It was on that bus that he began dwindling in and out of consciousness. When he opened his eyes, he would see a blurry cityscape slowly dissipating into lush farmlands. The hum of the engine helped him drift off, but the withdrawals would startle him awake every few minutes. Sick wouldn't even begin to describe how he was feeling. <laughs> Finally, he arrived at his father's farm. With nothing left but willpower, he pulled himself out of the bus and locked himself in his father's guest house. The next eight days would be the longest and the most painful of his entire life. He was passed out, out cold on a couch in that guest house, right when an abrupt knocking came at the door. It was just his father, bringing some dinner, 
but the knocking of the door rattled his skull. He couldn't move, nor could he eat. He just sat there, shaking uncontrollably in a pool of sweat. His father left the plate of food on the table, and then stopped before he left to take a disappointed look at his son, closing the door quietly. And Miles was only six hours into the process. There wasn't much sleep happening. There wasn't much of anything happening. Miles would stare at a wall, study every single crack, scruff, texture. If he stared at them for long enough, the textures would slowly become sounds, melodies from a mysterious part of his brain that had been asleep for a long, long time. These melodies, they got so close to Miles, close enough to touch, but he couldn't think. He tried and tried to put them together, but he was at war with his own mind. His mind was constantly screaming in the background of every second, begging him for another sweet hit of heroin. Come on, I just need some sweet, sweet heroin. We only want one more. Come on, one come more on. Hit. One more one hit. hit. No, you want one more. Do it. One more. Just one more. And every time it became too much to handle, he would take a look out the window. He would take in all the beauty life had to offer. Then swiftly ran to the bathroom to remove the drugs from his system, from both ends of his body. Then he would crawl back to the couch, create another pool of sweat, and start the cycle all over again. Finally, he felt somewhat better, so he left his father's farm. And then some months went by, and he still hadn't touched heroin. He felt brand new. Well, he was brand new. He had changed. He'd become arrogant and cold. But now, that wasn't due to the heroin. That was due to Sugar Ray Robinson. By this time, the boxer had become the absolute most important thing besides music in Miles' life. Miles had been a fan of boxing since he was little, but never actually entered a ring until after kicking the drugs. Joining a boxing gym helped him cope with the continuous cravings that came every day. He saw jazz in boxing, and he saw boxing in jazz. throwing punch after punch, each just a little bit different to try and throw the opponent off. Jazz and boxing are both improvisational arts. Whether you're working out a riff or learning a double right hook, these are the very building blocks that can create a masterpiece in the moment. Sugar Ray Robinson had a cold-hearted approach to winning and a certain style while fighting that Miles had never seen. He looked up to him for that and he adopted it for his own everyday life. It was in February 1954 when Miles returned to New York City, feeling good for the first time in a long time, mentally and physically stronger. Newport in 1954 was the first year it made a lot of news. So we were gonna do it again in 55. And for some reason or other, Miles was, didn't have a band. 
And I was in uh, a club in New York, I forget what club, Basin Street East or one of those clubs, and Miles at the back of the club. And he says, George, you're gonna have a festival up in Newport. I says, yeah, I says, you can't have a festival without me. I said, Miles, you wanna be on a festival? He says, you can't have a festival without me. He would have a habit of repeating himself. He liked to do that. And we set up for Miles to come up. He was not advertised. Miles was not in the programs. And that year at Newport, it was a very bad year for sound. We were experimenting with new sound systems. Outdoor music was new. And we were continually experimenting with different sound. And we hit a clinker. The sound was terrible that year. But Miles put his horn right in the microphone, which trumpet players didn't do. They played away from the mic or all above it. And he put his horn right in the mic and it came through clear as a bell. He was determined, more than anything else, to play his music and show the world what he was worth. He was confident, maybe not in the sound quality of the festival itself, but in his own sound, a new sound he'd been experimenting with. The key was that he would put his horn right up against the microphone, almost touching the tip, and played his horn ever so softly. It came in clear as a bell. Every single person was silent and wistful. No despair for the musician who'd ripped them off for drugs just four years ago, and no angst if he was about to do it all over again. Their brains were bound to the notes coming out of his horn, a soft whisper cooing them all into a peaceful energy. Miles' mind was wrapped up into something else. He was still obsessed with finding the emotion that he felt when he was in Paris, and combining it with the emotions he felt when he came back to New York. He was finally mentally ready to feel his emotions again, fully, completely, without fear, instead of running away from his emotions like he'd done all his life. Instead of that, he started running toward them. He would analyze them, pick up his trumpet, and pour his heart and soul into it. He would play exactly how he felt, and write it into music. And sometimes, he would spend hours just on one single melody searching for that feeling. And while searching, that melody would morph and meander through completely different feelings. By the end of this crazy jam, he would have something completely different than what he started with. He ended up with tons of melodies and absolutely no idea what to do with them. Now, the melodies he came up with around this time were particularly interesting, but in order to understand why, we first have to understand some basics about chord changes. Chord changes give a kind of roadmap for a song. One of the best examples of how chord changes influence a song is on the 12-bar blues. Chord changes tell the player what key to improvise around. The player here is only playing notes that fit within that specific chord progression. Improvisations around specific chord changes have become instantly recognizable. 
but they can also be limiting. You can only play notes that fit within that specific key, and if you don't, well, it won't sound very good. So this is where the beauty of Miles' new modal experimentation came into play. In modern music theory, there are seven different modes that all carry their own pattern of tones and semitones, as well as their own emotional feelings and unique vibes. Instead of basing his melodies on chord progressions, he was basing them off several modes. George Russell was a good friend of Miles, and literally the guy who wrote the book on modes. It's called the Lydian Chromatic Concept of Tonal Organization. It's some pretty confusing stuff to be honest, but I think the following quote sums it up perfectly. Quote, the challenge here when you work in the modal way is to see how inventive you can become melodically. It's not like when you base stuff off chords, and you know at the end of 32 bars that the chords have to run out, and there'll be nothing to do but repeat what you've already done with different variations." Unquote. That's actually what Miles said after George Russell taught him everything he knew about modes. This is when Miles started making such meandering melodies. He had so many ideas, yet he had no idea what to do with them. So he saved every single melody he wrote and hoped that someday they'd see the light. Miles wanted to get back to recording. He already had a record label to record under. It was a small new label called Prestige. See, right after that fateful week at his father's house, where he kicked his heroin habit, he'd been approached by the guy who started Prestige, and that guy wanted Miles to make a record. At the time, no one in their right mind would sign Miles Davis the Junkie to their label, so Miles thought, why not? I have nowhere to go but up, and that was true. So with a swift stroke of his wrist, the pen glided across the contract with ease. Miles scribbled his signature without reading a single tiny word. He was anxious to get back in the studio. He needed to experiment, to practice. He'd been out of the game way too long. Although Miles forgot about one thing. He needed a band. And his eyes jetted back to the paper. But the ink from his cursive name on the dotted line was still wet. It was too late. So Miles shrugged and handed it over. I'll figure it out, he said to himself. This is a simple phrase, but it was the antithesis of his newfound attitude. An attitude that was confidently reckless, open-minded and open-ended. This was an approach that led him to not just a whole new way to understand jazz, but of course, finding a band. And a band that would kickstart the careers of several other music legends and help establish 1959 as jazz's golden year. Miles' new attitude also led him to a lavish lifestyle of a king, yet a king that was still riddled with racism and oppression wherever he went. But that legend, well, 
that legend will be told in the next episode. Thank you all so much for listening, and I hope you'll stick around for the next episode. Music Legends was written and produced by me, Willie Miller. If you enjoy Music Legends, give me a follow on Instagram or Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. Also, please consider dropping some kind words in a review on Apple Podcasts. It not only makes me feel really good inside, but it helps Music Legends move up the podcast ranks, and that helps get the show out to more people. Now, maybe writing reviews isn't really your thing, and that's cool. So all I ask is for you to share it with one person. Could be a friend, a family member, your cousin, brother, sister. Just share this podcast with someone you think will enjoy it. Alright, well, that's all I got for today. Thanks again, everybody. I appreciate the heck out of you. See you later.